Hello and welcome to Lessons My Patients Taught Me. This is Dr. Elliot Davidson, Family Doctor, recording from Cleveland, Ohio. This is podcast number 44, our second podcast of 2024. And thanks to you listeners, we are now heard in over 40 countries. In this podcast, we talk about lessons that my guests and I have learned over the years, and I talk to some wise and interesting people. Today, we have another special guest with me, Dr. Ronnie Foss. Dr. Foss is a very distinguished gastroenterologist. I seem to have a penchant for GI docs, as he is the third one I've had as a guest. Let me tell you a bit about Dr. Foss. Ronnie Foss, MD, is the medical director of the Digestive Health Center, chairman of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, and head of the esophageal and swallowing program at the Metro Health Medical Center in Cleveland. He's a professor of medicine at Case Western Reserve University. He did his internship and residency in internal medicine at the University of Arizona Health Sciences Center, and then completed a fellowship in gastroenterology at the University of California in Los Angeles, where he focused on GI motility disorders of gut-brain interaction. Dr. Foss has served in leadership positions in many gastrointestinal societies. He's the editor-in-chief of two prestigious GI journals and is reviewer for more than 70 journals. He is and has served on editorial boards of 27 journals. He's a sought-after speaker and a presenter all over the world, and he has some amazing stories to tell of his travels. Dr. Foss has won many awards, including being named the world expert, leading expert in the research and treatment of GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, and a world expert in esophageal motility disorders. Dr. Foss's research has focused on esophageal disorders, and he's received many research grants, published more than 450 articles, editorials, or commentaries. He's published three books, and he has written 62 book chapters, including two chapters in Up to Date. Suffice to say that Ronnie Foss is a world expert on esophageal disorders. Ronnie, it is a delight to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you very much uh, for having me. It's a great pleasure and a delight. Well, uh, it's a very cold day out there today. It's Martin Luther King Day. Uh, we should say that and um, uh, give tribute to a great man. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself um, and how you got interested in medicine. So uh, I grew up in a blue-collar family, uh, and I have, uh, I'm the middle child with an uh, older and younger brother. Obviously, when you are the sandwich uh, child, uh, you have to perform better than the rest. Uh, I got interested in medicine during uh, high school, so very early. And uh, I got really intrigued by the different body systems, uh, and uh, I found myself reading a lot about it. Admittedly, uh, initially I was uh, uh, interested in zoology. Uh, I was really interested a lot in spiders and and spent several years researching spiders, uh, then uh, focusing on aquariums as a biological environment. But this is all in parallel while I'm, I was reading very extensively on the human body and, and finding myself very interested and intrigued uh, by uh, the function of the human body and uh, felt that probably being a physician is my future destiny. Interesting. I had no idea about the spiders. 
we saw a tarantula recently when we were in Costa Rica, and uh, that was a little frightening but interesting. Yeah, I used to live with them in uh, Tucson, Arizona. They used to live in my garage. <laughs> Tarantulas? <laughs> yes. Oh my. Few of them. <laughs> so, why did you choose gastroenterology and esophageal disorders in particular? Early in my career as a medical student, I found myself very uh, attracted and interested uh, in the gastrointestinal tract. I think, uh, unlike many other subspecialties in internal medicine, gastroenterology is unique by the fact that it covers many uh, different organs. If you compare it, for example, to nephrology, where the focus is only the kidneys, or even cardiology, where the focus is only the heart, in, in GI, you have many organs, and it makes it very interesting. It makes it more complex, the relationship between these organs, how they function, many of them affect each other. And that really uh, attracted me, and I was very interested truly early uh, as a medical student. Uh, the esophagus uh, was also, interestingly, an uh, area that I was interested already as a medical student. Um, I was uh, focused a lot on esophageal disorders, uh, found them very interesting, uh, found the area of uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease uh, a, a common disorder, disorder uh, with a lot of opportunities for research. And so um, I focused on that. The other thing which is about the esophagus, it's easier to study than many other GI tract organs. So it's, it's easily accessible for various uh, uh, technology or use of uh, different type of techniques. Uh, and so uh, combining these two, I ended up in the esophagus. I want to get into uh, the treatment of GERD specifically because that's one of your areas of expertise. But before we get into that, you've had a remarkably successful career in academic medicine. And I wonder what advice you have for someone who's starting out in this area. I would start with uh, the statement that academic career is not for everybody. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, you really have to want it and you really have to invest in it. And I tell it to everybody who says to me, I want to do an academic career. I always say, go home and think again. Huh. Uh, and come back and let me know if you're still very interested in that. Uh, the reason for that, it's really hard work. Uh, it's a long journey. Uh, it requires a thick skin. And there are a lot of disappointments in the process. But you have to learn from these disappointments, not have them affecting your interest in academic career. And that's what I've seen. A lot of people take it too deep, uh, all these disappointments, and then they decide to abandon that path. So that's kind of in general about academic career. On the other hand, I find it extremely uh, satisfactory. It's very satisfying. I think uh, it, it gives you an opportunity to spend a important time in three different areas, which is research, teaching, and clinical uh, care, uh, taking care of patients at the end of the day. In relation to academic career, the other thing that is very important, you have to be very passionate about it. You have to be passionate about what you're doing. 
if you're not passionate enough about it, then the question is how long you will be able to maintain it. Uh, you have to be very focused and goal-oriented. Uh, you have to be very focused from a research point of view, area where you would like to research, teach, and develop yourself from that point of view. Um, you cannot spread yourself too thin. And that's why, for example, I focused only on the esophagus, specifically on gastroesophageal reflux disease. You have to have also a very good mentor early in your career, um, especially after finishing your training. When you start an academic career, you have to find a mentor that cares about you, that can direct you, uh, that can help you. And I think that's pivotal for any success. Uh, it's very difficult to be successful in any academic career without good mentorship. And at the end of the day, also, you have to be very creative yes. and innovative. Uh, and you have to stay creative and innovative for years. You don't want to be like one of these rock bands who <laughs> have only one song. <laughs> the one-hit uh, wonder. Yeah, the one-hit <laughs> wonder. You really want to continue and be innovative and creative throughout your career. That's one thing that I noticed when I was looking over your research that you had done on GERD. You really were quite innovative uh, in some of those areas. Um, and I, w I want to talk about GERD in particular. Uh, in the research that you did there. Um, well, I guess we can talk about that first before we get into um, the, de the definitive treatment of GERD, but um, I'm interested in, in a lot of the research that you did on GERD, which runs the gamut from, you know, the sensations people have uh, and present with and how that varies and the treatment, you know, uh, even using acupuncture. Uh, you've done a, a large amount of research on that, and I would just like you to talk a little bit about that. So there are many aspects uh, uh, of GERD that I've researched over the, over the years. Um, we can spend probably another two or three hours here just covering some of them. Yes. Uh, you touched already on one of them, which is trying to understand why people develop symptoms as a result of gastroesophageal reflux disease, which is the reflux of gastric content into the esophagus. Uh, that can result in symptoms as well as inflammation of the esophagus and a variety of complications. Um, for example, very early in my career, I noticed that most of the reflux events that people uh, have, they go completely unnoticed. But, uh, and, and when you looked at it, it was less than 5%. And the question is, what makes these 5% reach the conscious perception of people resulting in symptoms. So this was one of the areas I was very uh, interested in in trying to understand what triggers symptoms in gastroesophageal reflux disease. I was also very interested in the various phenotypes of gastroesophageal reflux disease, in particular non-erosive reflux disease. These are the patients that have reflux symptoms, but they don't have any evidence of inflammation. And when you look at their esophagus during endoscopy, it looks completely normal. And the question is why these people have symptoms and what are the mechanisms uh, for symptoms in these patients. Amazingly, this group accounts for about 60 to 70% of the GERD patients. But when I started my career, 
there wasn't really much literature about them. Most of it focused on the more severe presentation of gastroesophageal reflux disease, which is erosive esophagitis, Barrett's esophagus, and other complications of GERD. I was also uh, very interested in the concept of uh, sleep and how it impacts gastroesophageal reflux disease. And I was very lucky to collaborate with one of the top experts in the field of sleep, Dr. Stuart Kwan. And that helped me uh, to uh, research a very important areas, which is the relationship between sleep and GERD. And as you all know, uh, sleep is considered to be a very important function. Uh, and uh, it's considered to be one of the pillars of health, like exercise and good nutrition. And, and so that, that was very... Uh, a very satisfactory, and I can spend a long time talking about some of our findings, but it was very clear to us that there's a bilateral relationship between GERD and sleep, where poor GERD affects sleep and poor sleep affects GERD. You can get into a vicious cycle. And there's a vicious cycle there, and, and we were able to show that if you identify that, you can break the cycle, actually, in both locations, uh, improving GERD or if you go after improving sleep and you can improve the other one because the two are dependent on each other. That's very interesting because I think that's true for other medical conditions as well, such as fibromyalgia where the muscles stay tight because they don't rest and that aggravates sleep. And if you can improve the sleep, you can improve the muscles. And I wonder if that's true you know, in other areas as well, cognitive function or something like that. No, absolutely. And so we were able to uh, demonstrate that in uh, several interesting studies that, that we've done. Some of them were really innovative and creative so, so back to GERD and the symptoms that you mentioned, can you explain some of the findings that you learned um, from those studies? We did find out, that there are many findings that we had from these studies, uh, but uh, we did uh, demonstrate that there are various factors that determined the likelihood that you will develop symptom on a specific day, for example. Uh, if last night you had poor sleep, because you slept only three to four hours. Um, then uh, the next day, you have a higher likelihood of perceiving reflux events than during a day where you had a good sleep. And it's been shown already in the literature unrelated to gastroesophageal reflux disease that poor sleep is hyperalgesic and good sleep is analgesic. Huh. So it doesn't mean you had more reflux. You just notice it more. So there, there, it's much more complex <laughs> as anything in medicine. So there are two things that happen, and we were able to show both. One of them, we showed that if you have poor sleep, then you demonstrate lower perception thresholds for pain the next day. That means um, even... Uh, uh, low-level stimuli may still trigger symptoms, unlike on a day where you had a good sleep, where now the perception threshold for symptom is much higher. That's one. But we also did show that if you are chronically sleep-deprived, you may have more reflux because sleep deprivation is associated with a lot of interesting behavior. For example, increase. Uh, consumption of food, increased appetite, 
that's weight being shown, weight gain, obesity, diabetes, all of these. And if you eat more during the day and you eat more during the night as a result of sleep deprivation, that can lead to more reflux by itself. So there are various mechanisms that, relate, that are related to sleep that can lead to changes in how your GERD will be experienced by you as a patient. That's interesting because in the years that I've been giving people advice about their GERD, you know, I do explain about elevating the head of the bed and, you know, not eating food late, but I don't talk to them about trying to get a better night's sleep in general. Uh, that, by the way, is a must today. And I think uh, it's not only important to emphasize the things that you mentioned, not to eat at least two to three hours before you go to sleep, elevate the head of the bed, and try to avoid the right decubitus position. But also it's very important to emphasize that you have to have a good sleep hygiene because that also improves your symptoms in relation to gastroesophageal reflux disease. Okay, that's really helpful. Thank you. Uh, I want to talk about GERD a little bit more. You wrote the definitive article about gastroesophageal reflux disease in the New England Journal last year, and I want to talk about what you see as some of the key takeaways from that article. So I, I was asked by the New England Journal of Medicine to write the clinical practice of gastroesophageal reflux disease, which was a, a great experience for me. It was a long one, but great experience and very satisfactory. So when you look at the key clinical points that I mentioned in that paper, and I, this is based really on our current knowledge, I focused on a few of them. One of them is that, uh, that you have to remember that heartburn may not suggest just kind of an innocuous process. You have to remember that heartburn may present, may be the presentation of a more advanced disease. You may have inflammation in your esophagus, what we call erosive esophagitis. It may progress over time to narrowing of the esophagus structure. You may develop Barrett's esophagus, which is considered to be a pre-malignant disease, and you may develop, you are at a higher risk of developing uh, esophageal uh, cancer, uh, the adenocarcinoma type. So uh, that's something that's very important to emphasize to people. The other thing that I want to mention also, it's something that we learned in the last four or five decades, that heartburn is not uh, always gastroesophageal reflux disease. Now we recognize there are many different disorders that may present with heartburn as the predominant symptom, and they are not gastroesophageal reflux disease. Our knee-jerk approach is that if somebody shows up in our clinic with heartburn is to give them anti-reflux medication. But we have to remember that there are various disorders that uh, anti-reflux medication is not going to work for these patients because that's not what they have. They don't have gastroesophageal reflux disease. For example, functional heartburn, reflux hypersensitivity, uh, rumination that can uh, present with uh, regurgitation-like symptoms. People may confuse it. Eosinophilic esophagitis, lymphocytic esophagitis. So there are many, many other disorders that may present with heartburn, and you have to remember it may not be gastroesophageal reflux disease. If you have, in addition to your heartburn, dysphagia or dinophagia, weight loss, anorexia, evidence of GI bleed, serious vomiting, all of it require an immediate uh, assessment by endoscopy 
Uh, I would not wait and treat the patient empirically. These are called alarm symptoms, and they may be associated with the typical symptoms of GERD, which is which are heartburn and regurgitation. So remember that. I'll just mention, not all our listeners are doctors, so dysphagia is difficulty swallowing, odynophagia is painful swallowing. The folks that, to try to differentiate the people that have true GERD from the ones that don't have GERD, would you then recommend that PPI test? So I think if you have just a simple heartburn or regurgitation, um, and you don't have any other symptoms, that may suggest that you might have a complicated disease, then doing the PPI test uh, would be an appropriate way to uh, start. Um, it's, a very, it's a short course of uh, treatment with a PPI, usually high dose, uh, and you assess response of the patient. If they do respond, that tells you that the patient has gastroesophageal reflux disease as the underlying cause. Some people prefer to bypass the PPI test and go straight to what we call empirical therapy, where they just give the patient um, a more kind of a long-term treatment for their gastroesophageal reflexes, and then bring them back several months later to see if they are responsive or not. I like the PPI test because you will know over a short period of time if the patient is responsive or not, because as I mentioned, it is... Uh, based on uh, many studies that more than a third of the patients present with heartburn for the first time to their physicians don't have gastroesophageal reflexes as the cause for this heartburn. One of the things you mentioned in the article, there's a bit of a controversy as do you start low and work up or do you start high and work down? Um, And uh, my tendency is to start high and work down um, because I, you know, when you start high and it works, you know that you've got the right diagnosis. That has the uh, problem of starting high and not working down when people stay on PPIs too long. What's your take on that? So it depends when you ask me this question. If you ask me this question maybe 20 years ago, I would probably agree with you. But uh, when you, if you ask me today, there's a, a very high sensitivity to high doses of PPIs. And especially the concerns is that when you prescribe it to a patient, if you don't follow that, patient may end up on this high dose for the duration. Uh, you have to be really. Uh, you have to really uh, follow up these patients, making sure that if if you put them on high dose and they are responsive, to taper them down to the lowest dose that control their symptoms, and not just keep them on this high dose for the duration. Uh, I think uh, there is uh, much more sensitivity today about potential side effects of uh, chronic treatment with prone pump inhibitors by both physicians and patients. And the current approach, if I look at even my paper, I stated in my paper that patients should take the lowest dose of PPI that controls their symptoms, and the need for long-term PPI treatment should be periodically evaluated. Again, it it is a much more cautious approach. Yes. uh, One of the things that I also learned from your paper a few years ago, um, they were recommending that everybody who had been on a PPI for five years needs to, needs to be scoped with an EGD, and your paper outlined uh, specific uh, patients that were candidates for that. Could you talk about that? Yeah, so you're talking about uh, Barrett's esophagus. Yes. Yeah, I, I would say that um, 
Um, in the past, if you had uh, five years, uh, at least five years of GERD-related symptoms, you should be endoscope at least once during your lifetime to make sure you don't have Barrett's esophagus. Barrett's esophagus, as I mentioned, is considered to be a premalignant lesion. Today, we have actually a list of different uh, parameters that determine who should be evaluated and who should not. And it's not really anymore the simplistic way that if you had it for five years, it depends on your age and dependent on many other factors. One of them is uh, how long you've had uh, symptoms. And based on that, then your doctor should consider uh, an endoscopy specifically to rule out the presence of Barrett's esophagus. I would leave it to each uh, person to talk to his physicians to determine if they need an endoscopy or not. One of the other things that was interesting in the article to me was the fact that you mentioned the three phenotypes and the fact that there's not that much crossover. If you have one type of GERD, you tend to keep that type of GERD as opposed to getting worse or getting better. I wonder if you could talk about that. This is one of my most... Um, uh, I'm very fond of this topic and <laughs> because I was actually one of those that uh, promoted the concept that there is very little movement in between the different phenotypes of GERD. So when I started my career as a young, fac a young faculty, the idea was that if you have GERD, usually you start as non-erosive reflux disease, which is no inflammation, and as you continue to have symptoms, you progress over time to erosive esophagitis. And if you continue to have symptoms, you will pro progress over time to develop Barrett's esophagus. Uh, what I used to call, or what used to be called the spectrum of GERD, where you progress along the spectrum. Very early in my career, I found out that there is really no evidence to this type of uh, medical thinking when it comes to GERD. And in fact, uh, the study suggested that if you have NERD, as a phenotype, you will stay nerd for the rest of your life. That's always been my problem. Uh, yeah, I, I, I know. started off as a nerd and I'm still a nerd. Uh, yeah, I knew some people <laughs> will feel very close to this statement. And uh, if you have erosive esophagitis, that's where your phenotype will be. What does it mean? It means that if you have erosive esophagitis, and we have different grading of erosive esophagitis that go all the way from mild to severe. Let's say you have severe erosive esophagitis, meaning severe inflammation in your esophagus. I give you treatment, I heal the esophagitis, and you stop treatment. Studies have shown that you relapse back to erosive esophagitis. Not only back to erosive esophagitis, you relapse back to the same severity you had before I started your treatment. So uh, it looks like these are three phenotypes with very little movement in between them over the years. Now, that has a tremendous impact on management. For example, if you have non-erosive reflux disease and that's your phenotype, I'm not really worried that you will develop. If I do an endoscopy, I document that that's what you have. I'm not really worried that over time you will develop uh, esophageal cancer or Barrett's esophagus uh, because otherwise I will have to scope you every few years in order to make sure you didn't develop it. But we do know that uh, very few nerd patients, if any, progress over time to Barrett's esophagus. That is reassuring. Um, so any other key um, takeaways from your article that you want to mention? 
so I think we touched on many aspects. There are many aspects, obviously, related to GERD that you can discuss. Uh, I also discuss in my article who are the candidates uh, for uh, other interventions beyond medical therapy. We currently have different approaches to treat GERD, medical, endoscopic, and surgical. Uh, I think uh, surgery for gastroesophageal reflexes has also evolved over the, the years and the focus now more is on partial fine application rather than the classic Nissan fine application, which was 360 degrees, tightening the stomach around the esophagus. Uh, the role of endoscopic, uh, it's an area of a lot of interest for many patients who are not interested in surgery, or on the other hand, they are not interested in medical therapy. So they're looking for something in between. So I discuss also who are the best candidates for surgical therapy, endoscopic therapy, and who should stay on medical therapy. Great. Now, um, what are some other lessons that you've learned from your patients over the years? So I think uh, patients are the best teachers as a physician, and you always have to be ready to learn. Every day when you go in and you see them, be prepared to learn something new. I think the, uh, the most important thing about patients is that you have to be very respectful. Uh, always be respectful to your patients. They really appreciate that. The biggest thing that I learned from my patients is to listen. Um, is our job becomes more and more hectic, busy. We get less time to spend with our patients, unlike what we would like to have. Listening becomes a commodity that uh, is, is, is very short. It's not that available. But you have to listen to your patients. It's extremely important for them to understand that after their visit with you, you spend the time and listen to what they have to say, that they delivered all the information that they wanted to deliver during the visit. They ask you all the questions that they wanted to ask you. And listening is not just sitting there or standing there, but it's also sitting there showing them that you're interested in what they're saying. Um, and sometimes we forget that. So I think this is one of the most important things that I learned from my uh, patients. You have a lot of experience as a teacher. I wonder what lessons you've learned from your students, your residents, your fellows, or from being an educator. Again, um, it's very important to uh, spend time with the next generation because you, as a as a teacher, uh, as a physician, uh, you are training the next generation in your field. You're training the next generation that will explore new areas, new research ideas in your field. And you have to serve as a role model for them. It's extremely important for them to see that what you are doing is uh, of great importance for you and that you enjoy it. That this is something that they will aspire to do t as well because Look at him, he or her. They're really enjoying what they're doing. You always learn from your trainees. Every time when I, I run with my trainees on the in-service, outpatients, endoscopy, and they ask questions, I always learn something new. I, through their questions, through their comments, through everything. So 
Um, and I really enjoy spending time. You have to enjoy spending time with your uh, trainees. And last but not least, they are very thirsty to high-quality mentorship and guidance and do not disappoint them <laughs> in that area. <laughs> and that's difficult because you have to tailor it to each person exactly. a, little bit, a little bit differently. Um, you have the added responsibility of being a medical director and a division chairman. Uh, and as much as you can talk about on a public podcast, I wonder what lessons you've learned from being an administrator. So being an administrator is a different area than being a physician and a, a teacher and a researcher. And it, it has a lot of challenges uh, when you take on yourself also an administrative responsibility, as you know as well, yes. because you've been in, uh, and you're still an administrator in an administration. Uh, but I also learned over the years that you have to be very well organized. It's extremely important. You have to be responsive to your faculty, to the people that work with you, in a timely fashion. Uh, you have to be very tuned to what they're saying. And if they have complaints or if they have suggestions, any of it, that would be, it's extremely important. Uh, you have to be very supportive. They have to feel that you support them, and you support them in any aspect uh, of their uh, function in the division, either their career, uh, their uh, uh, professional expertise, everything that they need in order to excel and also to develop their own career, you have to be very supportive. And you have to serve as a mentor to many of them. And that's also, um, as I mentioned, extremely important. Uh, you have to serve as a role model for them. Lastly, you know, you have two children in medicine. One's a family doctor, I'm very happy to say, and the other is following you in the field of esophageal disorders. Um, how do you feel about the future of medical care in the U.S.? I mean, that's a pretty big question, but I'm curious to see what you think. Yeah, it's a, it's a very big uh, question, and uh, I'm somewhat asked to predict what's going to happen in 10, 20, 30 years from now. First of all, I'm very honored and privileged to have... Uh, my children, by the way, all three of them are in medicine. Uh, you mentioned two that are physicians. The youngest is a nurse, an ICU nurse. So they're all in medicine. So in a way, there was some role modeling at home that all ended up in medicine. So I'm privileged and honored. The biggest change that I can see is there is a, medicine is rapidly evolving. And part of it is because of technology. Technology is rapidly evolving. And... Uh, Many other aspects of this technology will have a profound impact on the future of medicine and will have a profound impact on my children. For example, artificial intelligence, machine learning, all of it. It may make even some of the professions in medicine obsolete uh, because it could be all done through AI and machine learning. So I think all of it is coming our way. They're not ready yet, but it's going to come. Uh, it could be even uh, virtual visits to uh, virtual physicians where you, you go in uh, from the comfort of your house into a, a virtual room for a virtual visit through AI and without seeing a real physician. 
there are various of all kind of interesting things that may happen in the future. No question, they will impact all physicians, not only my uh, children in relation to medicine. I still think at the end of the day, uh, there's still going to be the human touch because at the end of the day, patients like the the human touch is part of the healing process, and yes. we will not be able to skip it. So none of these virtual realities will be able to replace that. I think that will still stay. I think you're right. And uh, I want to thank you for spending some time with us today and sharing your expertise. Uh, and it was really great for me to hear a lot of these things that you're doing and these exciting research uh, in the area of GERD. I learned a great deal. So thank you so much. Thank you very much uh, for having me. It's a great pleasure and an honor. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Ronnie Foss, for being with us today and sharing his tremendous expertise and knowledge about esophageal disorders, particularly GERD. I found it fascinating. I hope you did too. I want to highlight that, again, today is Martin Luther King Day, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was uh, one of my heroes And I want to mention that he once said that intelligence plus character, that is the goal of true education. It's fitting that Dr. Ronnie Foss was our guest today because he truly exemplifies this intelligence plus character. So I'm really happy that we had Ronnie with us today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today, and I'm very interested in your feedback. Please contact me on Twitter, rx, at ldavidson1 on threads at L. Davidson, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, or just say, hey, I got an idea. I hope everybody's winter is going good and you're staying warm. And remember to stay healthy out there. <laughs>